So I'm joined today by David Bennett for a slightly different podcast. Normally I just rant for about 10 or 15 minutes, but this time uh, I'm going to talk to uh, David, who is publishing a new book. It's called A War of Loves, The Unexpected Story of a Gay Activist Discovering Jesus. There's an uncontroversial uh, subtitle of a book there, David. Um, I was reading. I was reading this on a on a flight uh, recently, and the guy in the seat next to me was looking over and basically reading over my shoulder, as it were, and clearly intrigued by the book title. But this is about your life, David. It is. Thank you for having me, Peter. Yeah, it. You know, it is the journey that I took, and I wanted to put it in book form because so many people said to me, David, you know, this story has impacted me and has, you know, brought transformation in my life. So, you know, I was sitting with Nabil Qureshi um, not long ago before he died. That, that, that was a shameless him. name drop, but it go was. for it. But shameless go for name it. Drop. Here we go. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, he was a good friend and he just said to me, David, you, you, you need to share this story. Um, and so for me, ever since I met Christ in that pub 10 years ago now um, there's just been this sense that God has wanted me to share this story but it wasn't until about seven years ago that I really felt his permission to start sharing it and uh, some of the deep wisdom um, the pain and the tears and the joy that has come through um, you know following him into a life of vocational celibacy as a same-sex attracted or gay man Wow. So that that last sentence there, so much in that. I mean, you and I have met through this sort of um, yeah. uh, group of group of uh, conservative gay Christians is what I'd call it. Right. Uh, some some people like to use the language of, of uh, same sex attracted. Uh, some see, you know, some use the language of, of uh, gay. But I've been I've been kind of talking about this now. From my perspective, for it feels like forever. It's almost two decades, really, that I've been beginning to be, beginning to be. It's half my life. O open about being a conservative Christian, but also a little bit queer. And yeah. um, and uh, uh, frankly, you whippersnapper, you came late to the game. <laughs> so, uh, do well, you want you to just, tell you me? You cleared the way, Peter. You know, I, 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 I am. Yeah. The, you are the Jesus to my John the Baptist. <laughs> I don't know about that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you want to just a little bit about um, your life, how you met Jesus, and and what changed? So, you know, growing up in Sydney, Australia, I was in a you know my parents were agnostic atheists um, as I grew up, and. I attended various different kinds of schools, but ended up for most of my education at a Church of England school in Sydney, Australia. And in that space, uh, you know, I was wrestling with these sexual desires from a young age of 11, um, trying to kind of change myself, knowing that being gay wasn't good, um, or at least I'd been told that by some Christian uncles of mine. And so, in... who, 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 who I, I'm expected it extremely gracefully and lovingly, and didn't just say you don't want to be a puff, 
poofs well, go to hell. Yeah, right? I wish. <laughs> I wish it could. I mean, you know, people say things, don't they? And you internalize that. And you know, I kind of internalize this sense of self-rejection. And I think a lot of us that are LGBTQI or same-sex attracted, that you know, because of our different sense of embodiment, we often feel rejected, like we can't belong in you know mainstream society, and so we internalize that as self-rejection. And of course, the you know anyone with a decent sense of self-esteem will say, "Well, I reject self-rejection." Um, and adopt instead a, a radical sense of self-disclosure. You know, everything was about me being gay. Every person I met, you know, it was like, hi, I'm David Bennett, I'm gay. Um, and it wasn't until the age of about 15, I'd come out at school and to my family. And then I experienced real, actually bona fide homophobia for the first time when I was kissing my boyfriend in the park. And he gave me an amber cross actually. And, uh, you know, I had this amber cross as this man pulled up on a motorbike and threw a stone against my back there in that that space and I had this cross in my hand and you know I thought it was the symbol of my oppression but actually there prophetically even at that age you know it was the symbol of my acceptance into the kingdom of God as a gay man so it was a really interesting moment in my life and I put that on the cover there's a little cross that dangles down from the big placard that has a war of loves on it and so there's this kind of pursuing grace that I constantly had as I went through spiritual fads from that age I was into Wicca Buddhism I became a reformed Jew for three or four weeks for three four weeks so you really put your heart and soul into it was uh, it the, so was it the point where they explained the uh, Abrahamic covenant that you change your mind oh i don't know it was just like oh this isn't working next you know <laughs> it was really i mean i was looking for some kind of transcendence um and uh yeah so then i became a french existentialist as you do and it started to become a frank pardon naturellement exactly yeah yeah <laughs> um and i read a bit of oscar wilde and you know, it was, for me, everything was about trying to work out how I could have spirituality and my sexuality at the same time. And so it wasn't until the age of 19 that, you know, like I actually encountered God. But through that time, I really then became just an atheist. And, you know, I stopped looking for that. And I put all the pressure of meaning and transcendence on romantic love. But I got to the age of 18 and I was starting at university and I was involved in all the you know, clubs and the political factions and the queer collective. And suddenly that secular ideal of love just started to crack. And I was like, this isn't working either. And um, yeah, so then I got to the Christmas lunch table 2008. My uncle, who was a fundamentalist, misogynistic, anti-queer you know, imbecile in my mind. <laughs> and so, as you do, <laughs> as you do, you know, <laughs> uh, I was pretty feisty in my, you know, in my response to his admission of being a Christian, believing in God. Um, and I just said, you know, there is no absolute truth and you can't communicate 
truth with language. So, you know, forget about God. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. And what about all the other religions? What about suffering? What about gay people? Um, and he said to me, well, David, there's a few problems with what you're saying. You just said that there is no absolute truth. That's an absolute truth. And you just communicated that with language. So you just doubly contradicted yourself. And so I kind of stormed out of the room and was angry with him. But he did say something else that I didn't really, you know, that doesn't often get across in these podcasts. But he said, you know, the truth is a person that I know, not a concept in my head that I know perfectly. And that, you know, that person is Jesus Christ. And something about what he said just really actually worked for me. Like in my in my education, what I was thinking about French theory at university cultural studies and something about the presence of the Holy Spirit, the need for God, for communication actually to be possible. So, well, he, so he, I, yeah. I think that's interesting. I'm, I'm just going to interrupt you for yeah. a moment. I think that's really interesting because there's a there's a combination of two things going on here because, yeah, your uncle is sort of, you know, showing you up the logical inconsistency in your position and there is actually a, a, a gross logical in, inconsistency in a lot of sort of um secular rationalist criticisms of 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 exclusive truth claims i mean my absolute favorite is when 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 people say to you no one can know the absolute truth right we're all, all like um walking up different paths up the mountain to get to the mountain top and you're on one side and i'm on the other but we'll all get to the top in in, in the end and you go on a minute the only way that you would know if we, we were all going up the same mountain is if you if you were above the mountain and you saw everyone and you knew where they were going to end up and and these these sort of logical just inconsistencies that a lot of these of exclusive religious claims just don't stack up but what i think is really interesting in what you what you said at the end was that actually this wasn't about him arguing you out of your religious position in he actually pointed out to you as he said was that fundamentally christianity is not a body of doctrine that you believe it's it's a person who you meet exactly Yes, and that actually was a kind of postmodern apologetic in a sense, because it was deconstructing kind of modernistic you know, Christianity, is just this belief of presuppositional truths, um, you know, that you tick off, and um, it's just a you know something you read in a book and you you rationally assent to it, and now you're a Christian, you know, it's like way more phenomenological, way more. This is a person that you need to get to know. None of us have the perfect grasp on that but by yeah, grace I mean, I, I, we've been given I that remember, revelation i remember my conversion experience and it was it was meeting jesus exactly and it was it was just a very powerful um very wow. powerful charismatic experience no one argued <laughs> me into it i i met jesus you know i honestly think peter that is that is what keeps you in him you know like for me I look back and that just exactly meeting him in that way, that's what lasts, you know, it's the love of God that lasts, that will always remain. And um, you can't stay the same when you encounter that. No. So, so you come out in your mid-teens, you become politically active, especially in sort of queer rights and so on, and, and hell, why, why wouldn't you, as you get to yeah. the end of your school years and get into university? 
and you are the very model of a modern major queerist what changes so after i finish this debate with my uncle he has this prophetic word in the car that i'll be saved in three months time and that he kind of saw the holy spirit hovering over me or something and that you know jesus would come into my life so he was right i only had three months left of atheism and uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you have I, uh, you had you had a quarter of a year of death left that's and then right, it was like after that <laughs> i like that yeah quite a few years of death left um, <laughs> and so i end up um in this pub with this young girl who yeah, has fantastic lipstick and lovely kind of almost aubrey hepburn-esque haircut so you know my inner gay man is just very happy talking to her and uh <laughs> and um you know i'm not expecting to hear that she's a christian and so I asked her, how did you get your film into the largest short film competition in the world? And she said, well, do you want the real answer? I said, of course. And she said, well, it's God. To which, you know, she sees my face scrunch up, you know. <laughs> and um, and she says to me, well, you know, do you think there's a God? And again, there's this echo from the conversation I've had with my uncle. And I'm just like, gosh, I'm surrounded by these Christians. They're everywhere, you know. Um and uh, and I said, well, you know, there's certainly something there. You know, a lot of atheists will say I'm a spiritual person, but I just, I'm just against, you know, organized religion and this construct of the Hebrew Abrahamic God, you know, etc. And so, you know, I said, I'm gay. I've read all the Bible verses. I know, like, yeah, we're all good. You know, thanks so much, but no thanks. Um, and she says, you know, to me, out of kind of left field almost you know have you experienced the love of god david um and i don't know it's like every time i made the admission that i was gay to any christian they would kind of run the other direction or change the subject or go into something more superficial but she she met me and she wasn't particularly perturbed by the fact i was gay she's like oh, okay have you experienced the love of god you know, and that question just stopped me in my tracks. And as a postmodernist, experience obviously <laughs> uh, attracts you to, to something. And, you know, and she said, well, um, I really feel the presence of God right now. And I've never seen someone like charismatically kind of manifest in the presence of the Lord. <laughs> like, I'm a total atheist. So she's kind of like getting completely touched by God as she's talking to me. And it's clear that my uncle's prophecy is coming to pass by the Holy Spirit, you know. And um, and she just says, I have to pray for you. Can I pray for you? So she prays for me. And I said, you know, I'm a good agnostic. Look, good luck. Nothing's going to happen, but you can go ahead. So, you know, she launches into kind of the Pentecostal prayer of the century. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I adopted her prayer style. No, I mean, and so she just... She prays and I feel this tingling sensation on the top of my head and I'd never experienced anything like it. It was so beautiful. And then this like oil that just, you know, came down over my whole body and this power that like ran through my legs and I was completely dumbfounded. Like, oh my gosh, God is real, you know, and that changes everything. And so that does change everything. <laughs> like, you know, all my value set, my worldview, my beliefs was challenged in that one moment in a very powerful way. 
you know, and then I heard this voice and I never heard voices before. It's not something that happens to me. Um, you know, uh, as I can imagine, many listeners would say, I've never heard a voice before or something. And I really hadn't. And then I just heard this voice say, do you want me three times? And I said, yes. You know, A.W. Tozer says God waits to be wanted. And I think I was at this point in my life where deep, sincerely in my heart, I was actually wanting to know what love was. And this, there God, love was, you know, like there God was. And so I said yes. And then I um, saw this veil over my heart, the kind of two Corinthians style veil, darkness, like shrouding over me. And I, for the first time, I was like, I don't want that darkness on my life. Like I remember resisting that and wanting to be kind of set free from it. And then this pinprick of light just coming out of nowhere. And I went straight into the deepest part of myself that I didn't even know existed. You know, this place where all our desires come from and everything. And then I just felt this breath being breathed into me. And she said, you know, you're being born again. And then a voice again saying, will you accept my son Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And I felt this like tug of war over my soul for about five minutes as I finally, as she was praying and I kind of said, yes, you know, and then the love of God was just poured out over me. And I went home that night um, with her straight afterwards. And my mum, who'd become a Christian three years before this, who I resented for it, um, <laughs> yeah. naturally, um, she was waiting up and um, I walked into the house and I had to eat my words because I'd said many times, you know, I'd never become a Christian. Um, <laughs> so I said to her, mum, it looks like I've become a Christian. And she just, she kind of, she's an opera singer, so she really, really, you know, project her voice. She's like, hallelujah, you know, he's the God of the impossible, the prophecy's been fulfilled. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, she said, well, your uncle had this prophetic word three months ago that you'd become a Christian. I can't believe it. It's, it's actually happened. And I was just amazed at this divine conspiracy to save me. And so there was this kind of war developing, and that's where the title of the book and it really comes out of is a, a war of loves, this war of desires, a war between my heart and my head, between my old self and this new self that was born that day. Um, yeah, and so the whole book is really my journey from that point to following Christ. Um, and of course, you know, in that three or four weeks at university, a lot of my friends thought that I was something they sensed that something was very different because I was running around buying sushi rolls for homeless people and telling them that God loves them. And if you knew me before this, you know, <laughs> I was not you. <laughs> yeah. I'm guessing, so. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing as a millennial ish, you were, you were buying lots of sushi rolls, but they were basically for you. Yeah, exactly. But this time they went to other people. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Was, I mean, um, that, that, that's absolutely yeah. fascinating. And I, and I think I've shared with you before that my conversion experience is, is very similar, is um, almost sort of physically very similar. Just wow. I, being coming along to a vineyard church and, and suddenly God just 
coming into me from the wow. from the top of my head like fire in the in my yeah. air all the way through my body to my toes and god saying to me i know i love you and and the the i know was this this creeping sense of sinfulness that had been growing on me for the last two or three uh months that um wow that um but um that was before i realized that i was gay that sort of happened after afterwards so so you got saved you got filled by the holy spirit um clearly yeah. jesus clearly jesus healed you of all homosexuality <laughs> and you're now happily married with three four kids and the model of heterosexuality Oh, uh, Peter, I thought that was your story. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, no. I, it's been really theologically fascinating for me to, I think, the experience of being same-sex attracted or gay and being in this war of loves that, Peter, I imagine you know so well. Um, I think in that you are drawn very deeply into the truth of the gospel. Because you don't have the option to do the superficial half idolatrous. I just have to get married and live my little middle class life and have a, some hobby church on Sunday. Like that really just is not an option. <laughs> yeah. um, and so you either die or you, do, or you don't. You either pick up your cross or you don't. Which is a kind of wonderful grace actually. Because you're not given that other option. And so... I think I realized that the same idolatry that was in the gay world that I found made me very dispassionate and led me into, you know, seeking God was the same idolatry I was met with actually in the church, just with a different garb, different disguise on. And I had to go deeper theologically. I had to find a real crucified Jesus who was celibate, who didn't necessarily have sex, but was but flourished as a human and was that ultimate example and realized I was following him. I wasn't trying to belong to a church culture. I was actually meant to prophetically witness to it in the you know, radical choice of being celibate or seeking a mixed orientation marriage. And so that was a long journey of three years because the first three years, obviously, I thought gay marriage was still the best thing since sliced bread. And, you know, um, I, I didn't, I couldn't believe that it wasn't, you know. So what, what, that's, I mean, that's, that's really interesting because, because I, I mean, I, I sort of came out to myself and then to friends sort of a few years after I became a Christian. And it was, I think because that's when I only really realized that I was gay up to that point, yeah. I just I, I up to I, I I describe it as as this. Up to that point, I thought I'd been waiting for for the right girl, and then that's yes. one day I realised I'd been waiting for the right boy, right? And um yeah. and it's it's a it's a real it's a real insight into yourself, and it's it's kind of I think because I grew up not necessarily in in a terribly Christian household, though we did go to church. My mum be, uh, believes, but I certainly grew up in a in a Christian esque environment so the idea of being gay never crossed my mind yeah and so suddenly i was and 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 to be to be honest i was a late div, div, developer and i really wasn't attracted to anybody really until my very late teens and then i don't think i really recognized homosexuality in me until i was around um 22 or so and then suddenly it just became incredibly obvious wow. to me um 
but but I wonder for you then, obviously you'd you've been out for quite a few years, then you met Jesus. How did you how how did your theology settle in terms of marriage and sex and things like that? Yeah, well, so as I said, you know, I was, you know, torn. There was this kind of deeper conviction going on, almost at a subconscious level, that I kind of knew that same-sex activity wasn't right or good or what God desired. And I knew that not just through reading scripture, but also through being in various gay relationships and the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Kind of, no, this is not my way for you. This is not my way for you. Um and so I had this kind of policy because I love the presence of God so much. And like you had had that radical encounter with the Holy Spirit and with Jesus. I really, my number one value was I just want the presence of God and abundantly. Like I don't want anything to get between me and God, me and his presence. That's what matters. So, you know, I got to this point where I kind of entered into what I would call a truly Christian asceticism where I started giving things up or saying yes to things on the basis of whether I felt the flame of the Holy Spirit was, you know, alive and fanned into flame or, or was grieved and I needed to make a different decision. And so I actually started to make moral and ethical decisions out of the spirit instead of just out of, you know, Oh, I think this might be right. And I feel that my nature and my desires are this, therefore I'm going to do this. I was actually like, oh, Holy Spirit, whatever you want, please, like, I'll, I'll give you anything. And so that started to develop in me that worship, that, that, that deeper worship of spirit and truth um, instead, of, instead of moralism and instead of the law, you know. Um, Oliver O'Donovan talks about that tension in his Resurrection Moral Order. Oh, I love that book. It's so good. Um, love and, that book really helping me understand that process. So I got to France, Strasbourg, France, and where else do you have a romance than France, you know? And um, <laughs> <laughs> so that was really where the two wars started to come out strongly. And I, was, I wasn't in a church that was alive or particularly filled with the presence of God. And so I really was pushed with that idolatry of romantic love. And I just said to God, I need an answer from you directly. I can't just keep living with this unresolved so you know show up and he said i'll send i'm gonna send you a birthday present that was the sense i felt something would arrive around my birthday and then this book by um, wesley hill arrives washed and waiting um which many of your listeners may know others may not but a brilliant kind of memoir-esque exploration of his journey to celibacy as a gay same-sex attracted christian and i just received this answer from god through that book and I felt God convict me and say to me, you know, I need you to give me your homosexuality. And so I did. And I had, interestingly, this very powerful resurrection moment as I finally relinquished, relinquished my homosexuality to God. Um, I felt this kind of resurrection power fill my whole body. And suddenly something had shifted in my mind where celibacy or any other option God might want for me, my mixed orientation marriage or something just was like, okay, like you can have whatever you want. Lord, you know, you bought my body for a price on the cross and it's yours. It's not mine to do what I want with it. So that really changed, you know, going from this kind of internalist liberal, whatever I feel within me is right. And if you, 
don't agree with it, I'll chop your head off, mm-hmm. to like, Lord, you can do whatever you want. My body's yours. My life is yours. Like, I trust you. I lay it all down. I surrender. And and, and I think I, I really um, recognize in my story as well that that moment of surrender. And you've got this... Um, You've got this um, wonderful chapter, God's Greater Romance, and you start it with, with a quote from Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And you describe in that, you've got a little sub subheading, giving God my homosexuality. And just sort of, you know, you say, you're sort of crying out to God, God, I cried out loud once more in your book. I have a body. Where do you expect me to find the intimacy you created me for? I thought it was not good for man to be alone. Lord, I need an answer. And I remember for me, there was um, there was a moment sort of about, about two or three years in, we're struggling with, with homosexuality and, and I was kind of, I was kind of comfortable with live, you know. So, so I get to a point where this wasn't a daily obsession for me, and so on. But it was, it was kind of actually nothing's changing, nothing's changing. And I remember yeah. two things, two things happening. One, a guy called Simon Gilboard, who's a, a missionary, just spent a decade or more out in Burundi, in uh, in uh, yeah, East Africa. Great. And he was preaching, he preached from that passage, Romans 12, 1, about offering yourself and saying, this is actually, guys, this is about, this is about really give your body, give your existence, give everything to God. And then just one evening in church, I, I came early beforehand and I was just, I was practically in tears. And it was kind of, you know, this, I was saying to God, this feels like, um, this feels like a brick wall in front of me. This feels like mm. I just, I just cannot get anywhere with this and a very wise the, the vicar at the time or very wise man called jeremy pemberton not jeremy pemberton he's a, he's not the guy jeremy um um uh, vicar of st james well, it'll come back to me um jeremy said said to me um it's it's not a brick wall it's 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 a it's a slope you just can't see it at the moment wow. you will get higher and, and um, higher and just i i think in me just something clicked that this wasn't about me that this was about Jesus and what Jesus wanted to do. And I became, mm. I became almost, I say, fixated on getting a correct theology of marriage and understanding what it's about. And, and I suddenly, I have, I had this vision and it's, it's, it's the Bible's vision, but it came solidly to me that, that marriage is this icon of the union of Christ and his church. And that's what it's exactly. there for. And, and so and so ultimately marriage and sex within marriage is not mm. about us. It's not about fulfilling on 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 our needs. It's about proclaiming Jesus Christ. So the yes. act of entering into into marriage proclaims Christ's saving work for this for the for the church. And the ultimate act of marriage, which is sex between a man and and a woman, between husband and, and wife, is a physical sign of that saving work. I mean, if you, if you just think about the basic elements, it is the it is, and this is where we go certificate 15 on the podcast. But guys, if you hadn't realized that we go certificate 15 on these podcasts, where the hell have you been? Um <laughs> If you just think about, if you just, David, if you just think about the the basic physicality of of sex, okay, if if the husband is meant to represent Christ, and the wife is meant to represent the church, it is the husband who comes into the wife, 
right? It penetrates yeah. into the wife, not the other way around, who gives something of himself, the sperm, the gametes, brings them, almost throws them into the wife, right? And they unite with what is present in the wife, but can never by itself be, be new life and create new life. Yeah, and if that isn't if that isn't a sign and an an icon of salvation, yeah. I do not know what is. And and I suddenly when I suddenly realized this, I suddenly realized wow. reading again Romans Romans twelve, offer your bodies. I suddenly realized God, there are two ways I can offer my body sexually to you that will speak of Christ's union with His church and, and do that salvation. The first is if you call me into marriage. The very act of 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 being married and and having sex within marriage will be an act of worship because it will be a repeating icon of yeah. your saving house. But the second thing that I can do is by not letting my body be used for sex outside of that. By that act, I can speak of the act that yes that signifies you yes. and that for me was the game changer and and uh, that for me changed understanding sex from something that ful fulfills me and makes me happy yeah. or something that i want to do and 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 instead makes it all about jesus and you know what i if i write a book it, it, will, it mm. will be called the great consummation how the bible is actually all about sex because <laughs> because people say to you oh you know the, yeah. the, the, the bible isn't about sex you've not read the bible right uh, the the from 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 the word go sex and marriage and procreation are at yeah. the very yeah. core constantly being repeated constantly taking us to the final wedding feast at the end of of a uh, time the the marriage of 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 the of the lamb and, and his his uh, his uh, his uh, his, uh, his uh, bride and and, and 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 therefore sex has been created by god not as something to make us feel good but as an act of worship as an icon of of the universal savior's act with his with his church and you there know you go. I find, you know, some... I, I find that really interesting because I came to a similar revelatory point with marriage, but with a slightly different angle. So it's really interesting hearing the way the Lord worked to reveal that to you, especially that I like how physical it is, you know, and how pro the body it is. Um, but his kind of revelation to me was related exactly to the icon of Christ and the church but also somehow to the Trinitarian glory and like unity within diversity. So I suddenly realized God didn't create us male and female as a, a statement against LGBTQI people. <laughs> no, he created the male and female to reflect his divine majesty and un unity, this kind of, you know, two beings becoming one flesh that are distinct and yet one. Um, that somehow being reflective as his image and you know he said to me you know I felt I couldn't worship this God on Sunday and lift my hands and praise him if I was in my other ethical beliefs you know shrugging off his his image you know? yeah um absolutely. and so it became this kind of war of loves again of which ethic will I take will I take the ethic that's about uh, my view of love and who, what I think love is 
in a kind of um, instinctual way as a gay man, or will I choose to actually adopt God's view of what love is in that incarnate married sense? And so obviously you, you have to choose God's way. And I, there's this moment, isn't there, in all of our lives, Peter, when we're disciples and we say, you know, if everything I think and desire is the same as God, am I really following God? Is, God, is the God that I follow really real? <laughs> or is he just a, a construction and anthropomorphic projection of what I want to be yes. true? And I think my problem and the poverty of this liberal onslaught on the church at the moment is make God whatever you want him to be. It doesn't matter as long as you're happy, honey. It's like, what an insulting thing to say to someone you love that's your brother and sister in Christ. You're, you would want to lead them into all truth, not <laughs> say, yeah, you can just have any projection of God you like. You know, go have fun at theology college whilst you destroy everyone else's faith. Like, <laughs> this is a real living God. He has created us in a particular way. His image is at stake. You know, this is serious stuff. And, you know, having same-sex desires and being gay puts you right at the center of that. And yet the glorious gift is that you receive these revelations. And so I don't say these in ways to kind of shut people down or anything, but to challenge and say, do you realize what is at stake in trying to change the doctrine of marriage? Like, it is huge. It's, it is, as you said, right at the heart of the whole gospel. This is not some secondary issue. I don't know how many times I've spoken to you. Oh, it's a secondary issue. It is not. It runs right to the heart of the revelation of the gospel and our salvation as human beings So and the creation. So, yeah, I, I really think I discovered this huge watershed, you know, thing theologically and... I mean, the only thing that made sense to me was kind of default celibacy. So I became celibate and I actually befriended a missionary in France. And she really helped me see that celibacy could be a life of flourishing and beauty and actually abundance in the kingdom of God. And, you know, this particular missionary name is Mary. She had said no to marriage for, to five different men because she knew very deeply that she was called to the nation of France. And I saw her again. She had this deep theology of Christian asceticism, of giving herself to God in a costly way because of grace. And I saw that and suddenly it gave me permission. It gave me kind of, you know, Gregory of Nyssa says, we have an ethic, but it doesn't take on flesh. Then it's just a dead statue. There's no living example. It's just a dead statue. That's why God, had to come down in the person of Christ and show us what true life was, you know? And there I saw Mary doing that to me in Christ. And, and then I was given the courage to do that for others in this book. So that's my hope that I can be a Mary to others as well and help, you know, give them that example that they can follow. You know, Paul said, as I follow Christ, you know, follow, follow me. So, yeah, there you go, Peter. It's such a huge thing. There's so much to say. There's such a controversial aspect, but also such a beautiful God-magnifying thing when we talk about these subjects openly without fear, without shame. Yeah, I, I, I think I think that this, this idea of talking openly about homosexuality and, and shamelessly, I think it's a very powerful thing in the evangelical church. 
I think um, in the past it's it's been well, you can talk about homosexuality, but you but you but you have to have a nice poster boy story. You have to fit in with a a certain view, and I think that that comes from a, a church that has glorified heterosexuality, that has yeah. that has seen. I mean, I mean, I, I I kind of walked away from the ex gay movement because just I suddenly as it were woke up and realized heterosexuality isn't better than homosexuality right it's exactly. just it's just you, you know let's let, let's say god zaps you and cures you you just <laughs> lust after different people of different sexes right i mean it's just the same isn't yeah. it and this is what I, I think people can't um just can't get their head around and 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 what god calls us to isn't isn't heterosexuality he calls us to holiness he yeah. calls us to be to be set apart and and so when I mean you know when 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 people say to me you know Peter you you're just suppressing your sexuality and it'll all come out I mean you know what's what's the response there? I think that you know when people say that to me I'm say well what do you mean I think there's a again this lack of an understanding of Christian self denial that Jesus himself says unless you lose your life you won't gain it like pick up your cross come and follow me like my question to that person is when have you denied yourself are you really following jesus christ and my problem is like obviously you know we're not sarah coakley talks about the binary of libertinism and um and repression and she writes in her book new asceticism about how we can avoid that you know and and reinstate a truly christian asceticism at the heart of the church i think that's the project we need to be launching um and i think this gay marriage debate is really a little bit of a distraction from what we are really meant to be doing as disciples which is denying ourselves so that we might participate in christ's glory not so that we might you know suppress ourselves i'm not giving this up to look macho and stoic and pagan doing yes. this so that for the greater glory that is set before me in christ that it's like it's like c.s lewis says the problem is that your desires are too weak not they're not strong enough you know and nice. the holy spirit comes and fans our desire life into flame so that we desire the greater things of god we set our minds on heavenly things the great things of redemption are coming and we deny those smaller goods in order to participate in them i mean Oliver O'Donovan writes incredibly, we'll just come back to him because I'm studying him at Oxford at the moment, and mm. he talks about how we need to deny some of the created goods in order to participate in the created good. Yes. And I think that's that's what I really want to communicate in a war of loves on a popular level, is sometimes we're called to forsake one smaller good so that we may partake in a much larger and greater good that actually will give us the satisfaction we're seeking in that smaller created good. Um, the problem with that as well is that obviously I think homosexuality isn't aimed towards a created good, but is, is fallen and actually doesn't get there, but there's still beauty in gay relationships. I mean, I have a lot of them and they're still good. And one of the things I struggle with as well is this kind of Manichaean dualism at the heart of some evangelical ethical thinking, particularly in the U S that, you know, we can't see anything good. Everything is either evil or good, you know, <laughs> Whereas actually things are much more grey and complicated than that, and I hope I get that through also in and, the book. Yeah, and, and and I think the complexity with homosexuality is that actually, um, if 
if you take a, a, a good same-sex relationship, there is a lot of virtue in some of the components, right? There is nothing wrong with loving somebody and committing to them and and sacrificing for them, right? That That is, yeah. in, in all yeah. accounts, a good thing. And it is possible for two men to love each other. But at the heart of it is this erotic dimension that actually stands ex uh, totally counter to the way that, that God has intended us to order our lives sexually. And so if you're, if you're kind of, um, if you're setting yourself up into a sexual relationship that is at odds with the icon that God has created, that's essentially idolatry. And I think for me, that's, that's the problem. But at the same time, I, I, I want, I want evangelical Christians, I want them to understand that, the gay relationships are not just about sex and there's a lot yeah. of virtue in, in there. And I think that's part of the struggle, right? That's part of the struggle for the, for the, for the church that we see our gay friends, we see lots of great aspects of their relationship and they are to be commended. But at the same time, we have to say actually at the heart of it, what you're doing is not holy. Well, I call it the virtue of homosociality versus the 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 you know fallenness of homosexuality right. so there is this kind of homosociality when i see a gay couple loving one another there's a beautiful homosociality there that i think because of our schizophrenic christian culture <laughs> related to intimacy and sex we sometimes experience very superficial intimacy and so people are drawn to gay romances because there seems to be that homosociality on a very deep level. There's that company yes. that is accompanied around, you know, something that obviously isn't God's will. But so what I think we're saying to the church is where are the intimate, deep friendships? Where is the culture that can facilitate that um, and see it at the center of the church, not on the fringe? You know, I often feel when I'm with my male or female friends and I have a very deep, intimate friendship with them that is healthily ordered, that is blessed of God, people think all sorts of things. They sexualize it straight away. Mm -hmm. And I think what a sad state of affairs that we live in the church that when we see a, a relationship that's on fire with friendship, on fire with the attraction of the beauty of another person in a way that isn't, isn't sexual, but is propulsively leading us into a deeper union in Christ that we we can't believe that we have to say it's sexual. Yeah. I mean, that shows a poverty of how much we've even encountered the heavenly reality in the first place, because that's what we're destined to enjoy forever yes. with Christ. So I just think we need to get back to that as the major center of uh, what I'm, we're doing as a church. Yeah, abs absolutely. Um, so. So before we just talk a little, a little bit about uh, the the book and what goodies people can get if they pre-order it now, yeah. um, what's what's next for David? You've been you after all this stuff that we've sp spoken about. You came to Oxford to do a degree. You were at Wycliffe Hall in Oxford, which is as as any fool know is the greatest theological college in the world. <laughs> uh, after that, you went to do some postgraduate study at St Andrews in Scotland. I and did. worked with some bloke called N.T. Wright or something. You, you may have heard of him. Um, and you're, you're now, I mean, not right now. At the moment, you're in America on, on a speaking tour to publicize the uh, book. But you're coming back to Oxford 
um, to do doctoral studies. And what's I'm that going to yes, be Yes, I actually commenced my doctoral studies um, about three or four weeks ago um, now. And I'm doing yeah a, a DPhil there or PhD for those who don't know what a DPhil is. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's going to be kind of, I'm looking at, you know, queer theology, same-sex desire, um, eschatology and Christology and how they all fit together in that PhD. Um, in, and it's going to be like in Christian ethics. So I'm looking at the created order in O'Donovan. I'm, I'm going to send you my, I'm going to send you my Oxford dissertation because I'm sure there's stuff in there that, that'll be That'd interesting. Be amazing. Oh, and so you're good. Working- and you're, you're working with Oliver Donovan, whose book Resurrection and Moral Order, especially in the second edition, which tightens up a few things, is an absolutely brilliant statement of evangelical ethics rooted in the, the resurrection of Jesus. Yes, and that we get the major you know, ethics from starting from resurrection into the created order through the word and then back to our practice now instead of trying to get back to the garden, you know, um, Yes, and so they are. Those are those are. And I, I, what I love about uh, resurrection and moral order, and, and how it really helped me when I was doing my undergraduate theology, was it helped me realize that 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 all good ethics and actually all good theology starts and ends with Jesus. Yeah. And when we make it anthropocentric, when when we make it centered around ourselves, when we talk about what is what is good for humans and start that as a, as a as a starting point, we tend to go wrong because we as humans tend to have different priorities from God. But when we start our theology when when we start our ethics with who is Jesus and what what has he done and what is his nature, then we end up tend to end up with the right answers. We do, and then those right answers make us flourish. So you get both. And, and, it's that, like... and, and that's true human flourishing. So, so, yeah. so true human flourishing is embedded in Jesus, and looks to what does Jesus want from me, not what makes me happy. It's like C.S. Lewis says, you know, if you aim for earth, you get nothing. But if you aim for heaven, you get earth thrown in. You know, I think <laughs> yes. it's not perfect as a as an analogy to what you're saying, but I think that's the general gist. Yeah. And yeah, the book is now trending well on Amazon, um, and uh, I'm really excited to see what will happen with that. So it's uh, so so. Let's talk the book uh, briefly for the listeners, and we'll we'll put a link in the podcast blog um, so you can click and and, and order it yourself. So um, the book is uh, is out in America on November the the thirteenth. Is that is that the same in the UK? And the UK, it's November the 29th. November the 29th. So so American listeners only have to wait a few days. British listeners, it's available at the end of, of the month. But if you <laughs> pre-order it now, um, what benefits can you get? So if you pre-order it now, there's a $3 off. If you put in three War of Loves, you get $3 off. And if you pre-order it now, you can also claim the first chapter to read and the you can get the forward by nt right um so if you go to a war of loves.com um that'll all be there um and yeah i'm just thrilled to share this story yeah with everyone and i want it to be something that blesses the british church and can um take the conversation forward it's only one piece of a much bigger jigsaw puzzle but you know, that's what we're called to do, isn't it? As Christians is to just give our loaves and fishes 
and Jesus multiplies them. So absolutely. Well, look, guys, thrilled. I can I, I can I can hardly recommend this book. I've I've uh, I've 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 had it now for two weeks. Um, if you want something that's going to make people look over your shoulders on on a plane journey. <laughs> <laughs> this is the book. Maybe you want to have the conversations after that. Is another matter. If you buy it now and then go to a warofloves.com and just give them evidence uh, that you've pre-ordered it, say on Amazon or so on, um, then you, that unlocks for you right now uh, that that forward by NT Wright. I think there's some other uh, stuff from you as well that that, mm -hmm. that you're making available on that website. So even while you're waiting for the book to come to you, you'll be able to. Um, to get into into that uh david Excellent. it's david it's been an absolute pleasure um i really appreciate your friendship over the last few years um you've helped me with my thinking in this in this area as well um and it is it's just such a pleasure to have you on the on the podcast and i really hope and pray for you that this book a war of loves is a major contribution to the debate in the church on this issue. David Bennett, thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. It's been an absolute pleasure. I value your friendship very much and look forward to future conversations. Holiday quiet on these streets Except for some reason me The hometown harbour lights bright The sailboats clatter in vain Holiday sky, midnight clear Wind is high